good morning. Welcome back, everybody. I just want to point out that you are the truly committed people here. You're ready at 8.15 on the second morning. Proudy, Rich, congratulations right here. Uh, just a, a couple announcements before we get started. I wanted to, to point out that uh, this is the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, not by way of celebration, but I just want to, I just want to let you know that our uh, Library and Archives ha has a special exhibit. The exhibit is called The Crown Under the Hammer, and uh, the exhibit is in our exhibit pavil pavilion right now. There's also an exhibit simultaneously taking place both at the Hoover Institution and at the Cantor Arts Center. Uh, so if you get a chance to go over to the Canada Arts Center tonight, uh, that's the opening of the exhibit. The exhibit draws largely from Hoover Institution Library and Archives, as well as the Stanford Library's special collections, the Bowles Art and Architecture Library, and the Canner Arts Center. I hope you get a chance to look at those things going forward. Well, again, welcome back. It's my, my pleasure to introduce our first speaker today, Jennifer Burns. Jennifer is an Associate Professor of History at Stanford University and a Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution has the leading independent expert on Ayn Rand and the American conservative movement. She is the author of the acclaimed biography, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. Currently, she is writing an intellectual biography of Milton Friedman. At the Hoover Institution, she directs the annual summer workshop on political economy. The title of her talk today is A View from the Hoover Archives, Milton Friedman on a Guaranteed Annual Income. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Burns. Hello, everybody, and thanks for coming out on this uh, early morning occasion. It's a, it's a great honor to be here um, addressing this fall retreat. And as Tom mentioned, I'm a historian here at Stanford. Um, I'm an intellectual historian. That means I specialize in the history of ideas, um, great thinkers, and uh, uh, the consequences those ideas have for our society. So as you can imagine, being here at Stanford with the proximity to the Hoover Archives, they're an absolute goldmine for me. Um, we've got just incredible documentation, incredible record. Um, and I use these starting with, uh, let me get my clicker here. I first came to the archives for my first book, An Intellectual Biography of Ayn Rand. And I just found box after box talking about Rand's impact, her influence, the movement she started, the people who were drawn to her ideas. Now I'm working on Milton Friedman, and there are about 200 boxes over yonder, there by the tower, and they're going to let me tell the story of Milton Friedman from here. This is a young Friedman as a Boy Scout. This is him. Uh, to here, world-famous economist on the cover of Time magazine. And what I thought I would do today is use my time in the archive to sort of give you that view into the archive and to, in some ways, bring Friedman back to life as a commentator on one of the most talked about policy ideas of this moment, the Universal Basic Income, or UBI. So before I start with that, I want to set a little bit of a broader context before I get to Friedman. I want to talk about the UBI why it's come back into the current conversation, um, why people think it's, it's worth considering. But before I get to the UBI, I want to go even broader. I want to talk about this historical moment we are. Where are we? And I would say that, generally speaking, we are a year or two into a period of uh, political instability across the industrialized West. 
even in the loosest, most abstract definition of political instability, difficulty of predicting, that's where we are. We see it uh, in this country, we see it in other countries. Political institutions have weakened. Economic change has unsettled typical patterns. New media and technologies have lived up to their promise to be disruptive. And there's a sense that what people want from their government is up for grabs. From the perspective of the conservative movement, this is a time of soul searching, a time of having great power but uncertainty about to what ends, for other a feeling of um, disenfranchisement and loss of power and exclusion. And all of this, sort of living through this and thinking as a historian, it reminds me of another moment of political change and turbulence, the 1930s. The, the age of the Great Depression, of the rise of dangerous political ideologies. And I'm saying this not to like spook us all or scare us all or you know get us all on the edge of our seats, but because the 1930s were also a time of a great rethinking of classical liberalism, a great uh, reconception and reconsideration because of these political events. Now, there were a couple things going on that this earlier generation of classical liberals was facing. One was the rise of social democracy, fascism, communism, the uh, uh, crisis in the economy. And what this spoke to more broadly was that voters were no longer buying what classical liberals had to sell. And so there was a moment of coming together of many of the great thinkers who thought, how can we reformulate, repurpose, and rethink this set of vital principles and ideas for the 20th century against the backdrop of what's happening in the 1930s. And it turned out to be this extremely fertile period of rethinking that then eventuated in a much stronger uh, and, and reborn conservative movement. So as they were thinking about this, the basic question came up, how do we safeguard free markets yet ensure broad prosperity? How do we create a social safety net that doesn't choke off innovation? This was the conversation in the 1930s. This is the conversation we're, we're still having today. It's maybe the basic conversation of democratic capitalism. And it's really amazing to be here at the Hoover Institution because Hoover today is part of that conversation. In the 1930s, probably the most famous leader, the instigator of this conversation, which happened across national boundaries in many different locations, was F.A. Hayek. Many of his papers are also here at Hoover. And Friedman, although not well known in the 1930s, was part of this conversation. So I think this is part of what the Hoover Archive does. It preserves thinkers like Friedman and Hayek, both as a record of what they did and as a resource for us uh, in the present moment. So Friedman's contribution in this conversation was to argue we could do both, that there wasn't really a trade-off, that unfettered free markets could bring about growth, and they could also so, uh, uh, ameliorate social problems, uh, including poverty. Now, I'm not as optimistic or as convinced that it would be quite as easy as he presented it, but I do think he was asking the right questions and taking taking both of these into consideration, economic growth and prosperity, and it being broadly shared. Because if, there's this, if, if they're not linked together, 
or as Russ Roberts was telling us, even if they're perceived to not be linked together, economic growth and broad-based mass prosperity, then we're in trouble. So let's go now to uh, one of the answers to this question that is being proposed today, universal basic income. So universal basic income is proposed as an answer to this conundrum that we constantly face. How do we have a strong, growing economy? How do we let uh, innovators do what they do best? And how do we make sure that people don't get left behind at the same time? So universal basic income is coming up a lot today as one answer. Now, what is it? It is what it sounds like. It's a, a proposal to provide everyone with a basic income level to set a floor, so to speak, under citizens. And there's a lot of different proposals floating about, but most of them have these two things in common. First, universal basic income is a direct cash grant. It's not in kind. It's not food stamps. It's not housing vouchers. It's a simple deposit in this day and age, an electronic deposit into a bank account. Secondly, most of these proposals are conceptualized as universal. Everybody gets it. You define the population, usually within the geographic boundaries of a political unit, and then you're eligible. It's not means tested. You don't have to qualify. You don't have to submit paperwork. It's universal. So for a UBI to be a UBI at this moment in time, despite all the diversity and the different proposals, it has two things in common. Direct cash grant, so not in kind, and universal. And it's driven in large part by Silicon Valley. Here are a few of the people who have come out in the last year or so and said, a UBI is a good idea. We should try it. You probably recognize some of these faces, but this is uh, starting with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, CEO of Facebook, Elon Musk, CEO of uh, uh, Tesla and SpaceX. This is Stuart Butterfield of Slack, uh, a messaging service. Um, very powerful, very well-placed, and jumping into the policy conversation around this idea of UBI. And the thing is that what is driving a lot of these uh, uh, CEOs and other sort of tech titans and tech thinkers to come out in favor of UBI is the question, what are we going to do when the computers take our jobs? Absolutely, they, what are we going to do when the robots come for us? We're going to have a universal basic income, and that's going to solve our problems. So before you laugh or before you say, this is like the new version of socialism coming around again. Why does this always happen? Um, this is a free lunch, um, whatever. Let's talk about some specific examples. One example that often comes up is the state of Alaska, which essentially has a UBI based on petrodollars. Um, in 1980, uh, the state of Alaska created a fund that pools money uh, from oil revenue, and then they give an annual payout to residents of the state of Alaska. You have to live in Alaska for a year to qualify, and you have to you know, state your intention to stay in Alaska to be a permanent resident. Now, as I say, it's been going since 1980. In the last five years, the annual grant from this program has ranged from a low of $878 to a high of $2,072. So this is a long-running UBI for the state of Alaska. The real action today, though, is in a lot of different pilot programs. 
So this map shows various pilot programs that have come out experimenting with UBI going all the way back to 1975. That's a Canadian program that's short-lived um, but often cited as one of the first uh, actual experiments. I want to talk about one specific example, again, out of Silicon Valley. This is run by a group called Y Combinator. Y Combinator is a tech incubator and a tech accelerator. What it does is you bring your startup to Y Combinator, you apply, you get in. Um, y Combinator gives you a small grant, takes a small equity stake, and then they run everybody through a founder's boot camp, getting them ready to go before the big VC firms in the valley pitch, get their Series A, be off and running. Y Combinator has had a lot of big firms come through its program, uh, to name just two. Dropbox and Airbnb both started in Y Combinator. So this is not your run-of-the-mill incubator. This is one of the most successful, well-regarded, biggest players in this space in Silicon Valley. Now, recently, Y Combinator started Y Combinator Research, a research arm. And this research arm has started launching pilot programs about UBI to see how they work. One of the first ones they did over the past year was in Oakland across the bay. They've released very few details about it. Um, they gave about $1,000 grants to a small handful of people. They said this was a feasibility study, so they really haven't told us much about it. But just this fall, they said, okay, we did that feasibility study. Now we're doing a larger study. It's gonna be in two states. It's got about 30,000 people. I think half of those people get a grant of $1,000 a month. The other half get a grant of $50 a month. They serve as a control. And they're going to see what happens. They're going to set it up and study it. The research arm is, is uh, uh, as I said, from Y Combinator, but they've got a variety of academics. They've got um, economists, sociologists. They've got a couple people from Stanford. They don't have anyone from Hoover that I'm aware of. Um, but they're going to watch, and they're going to see what happens with this. And once again, two of the people most involved in driving this forward, and the head of Y Combinator himself, who set up this research arm, have deep roots in artificial intelligence. The academic field of computer science that is working to make computers capable of taking over more and more human tasks. And they literally would be in the AI lab here at Stanford doing this work and just worrying, like what happens when we succeed and we no longer need, I don't know, medical technicians, truck drivers, uh, waiters, cooks. What, what happens when we've made the machines do all human functions? How are people, aside from those of us programming the machines, going to survive in this world? So that's brought them to UBI as a possible answer. So, um, oh, and then as I was preparing this talk, uh, another announcement came out the city of Stockton, California, is also trying a UBI uh, within its borders for residents of Stockton, an economically troubled city wondering if this would help and clearly inspired by that. So this is a movement that's happening um, across, right in the Bay Area, across the country. It's also happening in Africa. The nonprofit Give Directly, one of the first uh, to start this, is working in East Africa. They have 27,000 people. They're giving them a cash transfer that will last up to 12 years. And they're in the middle of this program. Now, what do people, why are people so excited about UBI? What, what do they think we could get? from this type of thing. There's a couple of, of arguments you hear again and again. One is the most obvious. This will eliminate or reduce poverty. 
If the issue of poverty is people don't have money, well, look, here, let's give them money, ta-da. So that's one basic uh, response. Um, another is that, that this income, this sort of floor, will actually encourage people to take economic risks, to look for work, um, to sort of move into the market. And they also argue that there's evidence of better health outcomes. People are able to provide for their families and themselves, their health support for children and families more generally. Also, although this is a more muted note in most of the public conversation today, it would allow for the elimination or the streamlining of welfare bureaucracy. Because most UBI proposals also come, and this is like a replacement. So instead of doing our food stamps or AFDC, um, all the other things we do, maybe even up to and including Social Security, you're giving this guaranteed cash grant, and then you can wipe away a lot of those other programs. And then, and I'll, I'll, I'll warm up to this theme as I get to Friedman, many argue this type of grant is more compatible with liberty, that it's a fundamentally uh, a liberal grant because it's based on individual choice and individual decision making. So here we go to what would Milton Friedman say. Now, this is like perilous territory for a historian to sort of get up and say this, especially to ventriloquize this great man in this great hall. No, I know I'm taking a risk here, but I actually feel pretty confident that I know what Milton Friedman would say on this topic, and I feel pretty confident in telling you that he would support investigation of this problem and that he, in fact, proposed uh, policies very similar to UBI across the entirety of his career. So I feel pretty good about saying, Milton Friedman would say, let's check this out, uh, let's investigate this. And um, how do I know this? Well, part of it is well known because Friedman promoted the negative income tax. Um, it's, that's a well-known policy of his. It went through many permutations and then came out as a policy we have today, the Earned Income Tax Credit, a program called, by no less than Ronald Reagan, quote, the best anti-poverty, the best pro-family, the best job creation measure to come out of Congress. But I want to go back a little earlier to this, to Milton Friedman's earliest thoughts on what he called, quote, a plan for guaranteeing a minimum income to all. Now, it's a little bit fuzzy here, but you can see that's the title of this document up here, a plan for guaranteeing a minimum income to all. And I was rummaging through the archive one day, and I came across this. And I was like, what is this? I've never heard of this. I've never seen this. It ne was never published. And it's from 1939. Okay, it's that moment I was talking about, that real rethinking against the backdrop of the Great Depression, of fascism, of communism. What, what should government be doing? How can we deal with the broad social problems we're facing? In 1939, he's writing this, and he probably actually was thinking of it earlier, probably took him a while to come up and write it. So here we have um, a window into how young Friedman would sort of think about this problem. And I also am gonna say, this is Friedman's first policy paper. Here it is, in the Hoover Archive. Now we know all of the ways his policies have actually come into uh, our, our current world, things from school vouchers to volunteer army to floating exchange rates, um, all of that. This is the first time he's actually thinking through, putting pen to paper, here's what my ideas, my principles, my belief um, in individual freedom and markets would look like as an actual government program. So, this also comes at an unusual moment in Friedman's career. We, 
you know, think of him as this world-famous economist, it was a long path to get there. He started graduate training in 1932 at the University of Chicago, again, in that real moment of crisis. He actually didn't graduate from Chicago. Little known fun fact, he got his PhD from Columbia University, but he started in Chicago, went to Columbia, came back. Complicated story. When he did finish, or get close to finishing, the only job he could find was working for the federal government. So his first job was actually in a New Deal agency. He worked on something called the Study of Consumer Purchases in the Department of Labor. He was an associate economist. And this was again a time when the government was starting to think differently about the economy, faced with mass unemployment and realizing they didn't have good data. They didn't know how much money people were making, how much money people were losing, how much money they needed. So the study of consumer purchases, landmark study of its time, a million families were gonna be surveyed on everything from how much money they earned to how much money they spent. Friedman was basically a technician who helped them figure out how to do this. We've got these surveys, they're like this long. They have a list of all the vegetables you can imagine, like yam, kale, orange, and you had to go through each week and say which of these you purchased, how much, and then they would take these all and then sort of run uh, analyses on it. So this is that moment that Friedman starts thinking about these questions of poverty. Here he is in DC with Rose, this is 1935. Um, you can't tell because it's not in color, but they're by the cherry blossoms, if you look behind, the cherry blossoms around the Lincoln Memorial. So he comes to DC um, for his first job. And then um, let's uh, fast forward now to 1939. So this is 1935, he gets to DC. 1939, he's in New York and he's doing very similar work um, consumption uh, data and the theories of consumption for the National Bureau of Economic Research. So now he's in New York, and it's in New York that he's going to meet Gunnar Myrtle. Not sure if the name is familiar, Gunnar Myrtle, a, a famous man of the left, a Swedish socialist, later famous for this book, An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem and American Democracy, a sort of landmark study of race relations coming right on the cusp of the civil rights movement. Now, the other thing about Myrtle is he actually co-shared the 1974 Nobel Prize in economics with F.A. Hayek. And this was because the Nobel Prize Committee was basically worried about getting flack if they picked someone who was too much on the right or too much on the left. So they split the difference and they basically picked a representative of each side and said, prizes for everyone. So, but at this moment, Myrtle's in New York and he meets Friedman. Now, how did he meet Friedman? The archive doesn't tell us that. But what it does tell us is that there was a real meeting of the minds. The two of them were thinking about this problem of poverty, of social provision. And they both thought this idea of the UBI had real promise. In fact, from what I can tell, it was this meeting that motivated Friedman to write this up as a more formal paper. And uh, the, the paper that he then would write up related to this was called, quote, an objective method of determining a minimum standard of living. And I found this among the correspondence between him and Gunnar Myrtle's um, assistant. So how did Friedman approach this problem? You know, it's hard to read the text here, maybe some of you close can see, but, but he begins with, with what we would recognize as sort of Friedman um, artful and elusive style. The poor we have always with us. Um, so starts with that sort of biblical reference and then moves on very quickly to say, the problem with all of these programs is they're not scientific. 
They're not scientific, they're not quantitative. We sort of wander about with no idea what we're doing. And his proposal was, we now have a science. Again, we're in the 1930s. The new science of nutrition. This is again, like very, you know, everyone's very excited about nutrition. We figured out calories, calorie counts, all of this kind of thing. He says, with nutrition, we can objectively determine the amount of food people need to survive. With all this consumer and income data we also have, we can determine how much that food costs. So we can set an income floor based on that, enough income to give uh, people the food they need to survive. And that would be an objective and a scientific way to approach this problem. Now he says a couple of other interesting things here. He talked openly about what he called a failure coefficient. He said, even with all this data, even with all this science, there's going to be a failure coefficient, by which he meant, as he described it to Myrtle, even if we do it right, some families are not going to get all the food they need with this income. They are not going to be able to provision themselves for whatever reason, and that's just part of it. That's baked in the cake. That's part of it. We have to accept a certain failure coefficient. And he went on, and that's because for him of individual choice, as he wrote, quote, in a democracy at least, it is a fundamental premise that in general, the individual choices are to be accepted, that he is the best judge of what he wants and of what is, quote, good for him. And he went on to say this, quote, basic premise that the choices of individuals are the final standard. What this means is that, quote, we must reconcile ourselves to a certain percentage of failure. Now, Myrtle's assistant writes back, uh, sorry, this is another page of the manuscript, and here's um, uh, Myrtle's assistant writing back. They're kind of going back and forth on the details of all of this. And he writes back and says, you know, we're both very interested in seeing you again and having another discussion. I myself have been trying to reach the same goal along similar lines. Now, he went on to say he objected to Friedman's title. He didn't think the aspiration to be scientific was, was met in the way that Friedman claimed it had been. He also questioned, um, you know, this, what he called the, quote, unrealistic assumption of individual choice. And he said quite clearly, quote, on the basis of another political ideology, I would prefer quite another kind of assumption. He then went a little more technical. I didn't think nutrition was adequate. There's housing, there's clothing, there's other fundamental costs, so he's not sure about that. Um, and then he kind of goes back to their conversation. It seems like they sort of came to a consensus at the end of this conversation, which was something like this. Um, let's come up with several different standards of living, quote, clearly set out the arbitrariness of each one of them and let the politicians choose. This was kind of their, their summing up. So, I mean, thinking about this, I would just flag for you, this is a remarkable moment. These are two men on the opposite ends of the political spectrum, very different assumptions, looking at the same problem and coming up with a very, very similar solution. Now, the devil is in the details, of course. Some of Friedman's assumptions were not convincing to those of Myrtle. The focus on food seemed inadequate. But nonetheless, we have a meeting of the minds. We have a discovery of common ground. We have some potential here. And I think what this shows is the power behind this idea as a way of reconciling a focus on individual choice and individual liberty and a, a social, broad social provision or a social safety net. So both of them are coming to it because they're seeing it does some of what they want. Now, 
what happened to Friedman's proposal? In the short run, nothing. He's a nobody. Nobody knows who Milton Friedman is in 1939. By 1964, they know him a little better. He comes out with his uh, blockbuster, Capitalism and Freedom. In the meantime, Friedman had gone from working at the Department of Labor to the Department of the Treasury, and he was very involved in helping figure out wartime taxation during World War II. And so if this first proposal that I was describing to you was described, was influenced by the consumer purchase study by income uh, and consumption, the second proposal that comes out in capitalism and freedom is really influenced by his time in the Treasury Department, because he's taken this first idea, you know, guaranteed annual income, and he's run it through the tax system for what he calls a negative income tax. So now the idea is that low income earners will get a rebate through the tax system, which essentially amounts to this um, annual income. And this actually had legs as, as proposed. Now, it was picked up um, in the 70s by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who brought it to Richard Nixon, it became part of a proposal, Nixon's family assistant plan. There's like a long and torturous political history, which I'll skip over. Um, but basically, it emerged eventually um, as the Earned Income Tax Credit, a program still with us today. This is a contemporary ad um, for uh, California's uh, uh, program. So, so over time, two things happened. One is that it, it became merged into the tax system. The second is that for Friedman, the universal basic income, the, the goal and the meaning and the benefit of it had shifted somewhat. By the 60s and the 70s and 80s, he'd come to see its main among its main benefits as being replacing what he thought was an intrusive, paternalistic, and destined to perpetually grow welfare bureaucracy. So if the first proposal was sort of developed in an era of uh, mass unemployment, mass poverty, and out of Friedman's concern that New Deal programs were becoming too intrusive and getting in the way of proper market functions, the second round of proposals that he promotes is responding more to the great society, the evolving and growing welfare state, and pr proposing this as a way to replace, streamline, or deeply reduce uh, the welfare state. So given that we have the earned income tax credit, if we bring Friedman back to life, wouldn't he say, forget about this UBI stuff, we've already done it, we're good. Well, there's a couple differences between UBI and EITC that I think he might find compelling. One is that UBI is far more simple. This image actually is part of this whole universe of telling people how they can get an earned income tax credit. So, um, you know, the, the idea of the UBI is moving us towards that postcard tax system that we were talking about yesterday, right? It's not happening yet. To get the EITC, you've got to hire someone to basically get you this money to show you how you get in, how you qualify, how you certify, how you don't get inadvertently accused of fraud, et cetera. Um, so the UBI is, is way more simple. The UBI is, is more like the postcard concept. Secondly, when it's conceptualized as universal, um, it treats people the same. And this, for Friedman, was a key value that before the law, everyone was the same, everyone was treated the same, there weren't special statuses or special categories. Um, so I think he might find that aspect of it compelling. And it still has the same benefit of streamlining uh, uh, bureaucracy. Now, 
What about incentives? This is the most common objection, and I'm sure at least a handful of you, if not the entire room, are thinking this. If we give people money, they'll never work. This is the most common objection to this program. And another one might be it's a waste of money. You give them this and they spend it on drugs or alcohol or they do, people do other things. They're not responsible stewards of this money. Now, there's some evidence that Friedman either didn't consider this likely or didn't consider it problematic. After all, he accepted from the very beginning this idea of a failure coefficient. It's not going to work perfectly. There's going to be some failure. Let's not focus on the failure. Let's focus on the gain and what we could uh, benefit from in the, in the bigger picture. So he's not going to get tripped up on the cases where it doesn't work as functioned. There's also a really interesting uh, exchange between him and William F. Buckley on Crossfire, which I thought to get this video up here, uh, like some of our other speakers did. But when Buckley brings up um, pretty much the same issue, and he says, you can't just give money to people in these depressed areas. Doesn't somebody have to watch over them to make sure they get their children inoculated and take care of them and do the right thing and don't squander it all? And you know, Friedman basically said, people have incentive to do it themselves, and they want to do the right thing. He was a great optimist, a great believer in human nature. Here's what he said directly to Buckley, quote, if we give them the money, we will strengthen their responsibility. Now, this, this is a theme that's coming out a lot in today's UBI, that a basic level of cash could strengthen poor people's resilience, that it could underwrite good habits as well as bad habits. And we see that idea coming through very strongly in Friedman. I think some of his support for this idea also relates to the exposition we heard yesterday from Peter Berkowitz on classical liberalism and, and, and its, uh, its belief that it's not government's job to judge the morals of the citizens. It's not government's job to regulate their behavior. And I think um, Friedman saw that something like the UBI would simply be a way of handing over a resource and then letting individuals choose how to use it and it would take the state entirely out of the business of determining who is eligible, how we're using the money, um, that sort of uh, parental or oversight uh, role that he didn't think was appropriate. Now, in the end, Friedman was a great believer in both empirical evidence and first principles. He believed, and there's ample evidence to show, that something like this met um, the principles of liberalism being built upon individual choice, um, individual liberty. But he would also want to know, does it work? How does it actually work? And he'd want to see data, and he'd want to see studies, I think, before putting his final verdict on. So come back here, five to 10 years. We'll have a lot more data, and I'll give you the final answer. Thank you so much. Thank you.